Let's start a new series. Genesis. Genesis 1. Now we are going to miss James, but don't worry, he's not far. He's still in the New Testament. You can find him anytime. Uh, but we had a good time going through James. Um, and now we're kicking it old school, going back to the Old Testament, which is still just as relevant as ever. And uh, we're going to the book of Genesis. Today we'll just look at the first day. The first day of the world. You history buffs, this one's for you. We're going to go back to the very first day where it all began, which is what the book of Genesis is all about. In fact, that word Genesis, just a Latin word that means beginning or it means uh, a point of origin. And so in Genesis, what we have is the book of beginnings. It was written by a guy named Moses, and he wrote it while he was traveling around uh, with the nation of Israel. As you know, Moses uh, helped lead the nation of Israel out of Egypt and towards the promised land. As you know, things didn't go totally according to plan because of the sin of the Israelites. They spent 40 years, a generation or so, out in the wilderness. And during that downtime, at some point, Moses writes the first five books of the Bible, and that includes Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and how it all began. And we're going through Genesis for a really particular reason. Uh, we're going to go line by line, verse by verse, through most of the book of Genesis, but we're looking at Jesus' role in the book of Genesis. We're Christians and we follow Christ. And as Christians who follow Christ, we often think of his beginning incompletely. We think of his beginning as him laying in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, shepherds coming, wise men giving gifts. And that is truly his incarnation. That's when Jesus, God, became a man. That is when he took on bodily form and lived amongst us as one of us to rescue us, to save us, to die in our place for our sins. But that is actually not the beginning of the story. Jesus is God. Jesus is the second member of our triune God. We'll talk a little bit about that today. And he is actually not from 2,000 years ago. That is when he was incarnated and lived amongst us. But actually he, Jesus, our Savior, is from the beginning. He had no beginning. He invented the idea of beginnings. That was his invention, his thought, his doing. He himself needed no one to give him a beginning, and then he began all things. And so though the word Jesus is not found in the book of Genesis, his fingerprints, his footprints are all throughout it. And we see him pictured, foreshadowed, displayed. And so we're going to look at our Christ from his role in the beginning. Should be an awesome series, right? Should be great. Who's excited? Nobody? Okay, great. Well, get what you pay for. These sermons are free. Let's dive in and we'll see Jesus' role in creation. Jesus' role in creation. Let's go back all the way to the beginning. Genesis 1.1 says this. Wonderful, beautiful, helpful words to us this morning. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. This is the cause of all things. This is the origin. This is the beginning. This is the starting point of all reality that you and I live within. This is the great cause. In the beginning, God. Now, we have to step back to be sure and ask, who is God? 
Like which God are we talking about? Perhaps you've heard of more than one God. Perhaps you've heard of false gods and people who call themselves gods, like the pharaohs um, of the past, which Israel would have known well, who's reading this as the first audience. Who are we talking about when we talk about God? You will see from chapter one that what we are talking about is the triune God, the only God, the real God, the God of the Bible, the Trinity. In fact, if you look down towards verse 26, 27, you'll see when it gets to the point where he creates us, man and woman, male and female, uh, he says, let us create man in our, our own image. This tips us off to a great doctrine and a great fact that we enjoy today, something we know, something that's been revealed, that as believers in God, we are monotheists. That means we have one and only one God. The Bible says, and I believe it's Deuteronomy 6, 4, 5, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And throughout the scriptures, that one God, we see he is made up of, consists of three persons. That's God the Father. He is totally, completely God. And that is God the Son, totally and completely God. He is the member of the Trinity who came down from heaven to earth, took on human form, and was given the proper name Jesus. So we refer to God the Son interchangeably as Jesus. There is God the Holy Spirit. He is totally and completely 100% God. However, they are not three gods or a family of gods or multiple gods or some sort of polytheism, which is many gods. This is one God shown to us, manifest to us in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and they all have this beautiful, wonderful, incredible, breathtaking role in making everything in beginnings, in the, the, the starting line, in our origin. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This verse one is likely talking particularly about God the Father's role in creation. We see this in several places in the scripture. The Apostles' Creed starts with this line, I believe in God the Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth. We need to remember this, that we have been made by a father, not by anything else, not by anyone else, not by any other system or science, but rather we were placed here and given life here by a father that is God the Father. We must remember this, otherwise we will live life like an avid reader who has ripped out the first page of the book. They know they're in the middle somewhere, but they don't know really what's happening, what's going to happen, or how it's going to happen, because they don't know where it all began. A lot of people live like this. It's very sad. It's very difficult. It's very, uh, it, honestly, it breaks my heart. It, it, it breaks my heart. A lot of people know that they're here, but they don't know why they're here. They don't know how it all began. They don't know that someone who loved them started them and cares for them and is guiding them. They don't know that someone purposefully placed them on an earth built for them, built for their joy and their satisfaction, built for them to take dominion over and to cultivate. There are people today who are lost in confusion and disorientation because they live lives without the first page of the book. They do not know where this all began. They do not know why they are here. They do not know that they have a father with a purpose for them. We must remember the first 
page of the book. We must believe the first page of the book. We must preach the first page of the book. Right? So let's do that now while we're here. We at Griggs Memorial, we believe in the doctrine of creationism. Amen? We believe in creation. We believe that God created the heavens and the earth. For us, and for all of Orthodox Christianity, I would say this is a closed-handed issue, not an open-handed issue. Now, there are good Christians who debate exactly how long ago this was. Cool, enjoy the debate, right? There are Christians, for some reason I don't quite understand, who want to debate whether or not it was six literal days or it's like six ages, eons. I'm a six-day guy, amen? I mean, I, it's God. He can figure, he is... Six days. I think it was six literal days. I got a lot of reasons for that. First of all, all throughout Genesis 1, it says, the morning and the evening were the first day. Right? So I, I know God's being a little poetic here. I know, I know there's some poetry involved, but that sounds pretty specific. Right? So kind of a weird poem telling exactly what happened. So I think it was six literal days. But here is the closed-handed issue. Okay? Here's the closed-handed issue. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is a closed hand, right? This is foundational. This is fundamental. This is a doctrine we must believe in to believe in the gospel. What I am saying is this intense, okay? This is exactly what I'm saying. You cannot disbelieve Genesis 1-1 and believe John 3-16. That does not work, Okay. Genesis 1-1 is just as important as John 3-16, for it is in creation that we see the display of God's perfect nature, his incomprehensible power, his infinite creativity, his eternal glory and majesty and worthiness. Without Genesis 1-1, we don't even realize who we've sinned against and what we need to be saved from. Without Genesis 1-1, we don't really realize who is the one actually doing the saving, the one who made us and no one else. Genesis 1-1 is incredibly important. It displays that we are created and not creator. It displays that there is indeed a creator to whom all mankind is accountable, that there is one who gives life and can take life, and he ultimately, as our righteous judge, will decide what happens in eternal life. All of that is wrapped up in this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is a closed-hand issue. We are creationists, okay? Which we, here's what that means. We believe that creation is an act of God. So what we are saying also is that it, everything else, any other idea is false. We deny any system, any type of system, any theory, anything that draws a conclusion other than in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, for some of you who are new to Christianity, welcome. We're definitely glad to have a talk, down to have a conversation, down to hear what you think for sure. Love you and uh, would love that uh, chance to just dialogue about this. For some, they might think that this is some sort of decree against something like science. We're actually really big fans of science, huge fans, pro-science, okay? We're just Christians. So here's what this means, is that we don't just believe in science, we also believe in Christ, right? And we believe in Christ 
over science or anything that's called science. And our Christ, who we follow, believed in the book of Genesis. In Matthew 19, I believe it is, he quotes Genesis 1. Not as a poem, not as a theory, not as one idea, but as truth. Saying that God, in the beginning, made them in his image, male and female, the leave mother and father, cleave to each other. Jesus quotes Genesis. He references Abel in Luke 11. Abel's from Genesis 4. He references Noah in Matthew 24, which is from Genesis 6. From all accounts, we see our Savior Jesus believed in Genesis, so we believe in Genesis. Amen? This is the truth. I need you to get excited about this. I need you to believe this. I need you to know this. If Jesus believed it, we believe it. We believe in Jesus over anything because Jesus rose again from death. So anyone else wants to come up with a theory, when they rise again from death on their own volition, we'll probably give that a listen. We'll be like, okay, you might have a point. But as of right now, it was Jesus. Jesus rose again from the grave. He says that it was all created by God. So we follow Jesus and we believe that every, everything's beginning is a direct act of God. That God is the great cause. And this is good news. Because without God being the cause, all of creation would be eternally in chaos. Eternally in chaos. You say, well, we're in chaos now. Yeah, but it's not eternal. It hasn't always been there, as we see in Genesis 1 and 2, and it won't always be there, as we see in Revelation 21 and 22. Right? It would always be in chaos. We see this in the scriptures that we're reading. Look at verse 2. We see a little bit of chaos here at the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Check this out. It says, And the earth was without form and void. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the waters. Okay, kind of cryptic for us, Westerners, 2021, right? Maybe not going to get the exact meaning directly firsthand. Let's start with the beginning of the verse, without form and void. What does all this mean? Well, actually, in the ancient Hebrew, you can look this up. It's very well documented. It's in most commentaries you'll pick up. Ancient Hebrew, this was a, a way of saying chaos. Without form and void, chaos. Now, it's not the kind of chaos you and I think of, right? When you think of Marin and Alden running around, you know, after church, breaking the communion table and all that, a teenager playing punk rock real loud, that's not the kind of chaos they're referring to. They're talking about a chaos that's a little different. It's basically, in essence, an unorderedness, out of order, disorder, not yet formed, empty, uninhabitable for life. That's the idea of their thought behind chaos. He says it was without uh, form. It had nothing uh, it had no order. There was no system. It was void. It was all empty. There was nothing living upon it or in it. Darkness was on the face of the deep, which means God creates the heaven and the earth. But in verse 2, we see that it was not yet functioning. It was chaos. Verse 2 is very important. It is not a normal verse. It's a very purposeful verse for a very particular reason it is absolutely it is in here for an incredibly uh, uh, potent purpose 
right? It is literal, but yet there is something of a pic- picture being painted in verse 2 for the original audience, the nation of Israel, wandering in the desert, coming out of Egypt. Moses, the writer, is painting a picture of what the world would still be like if all of the stories they had heard back in Egypt about false gods really were in charge. That's absolutely what he is doing. He is painting a picture of something like deism, and if deism were true. Deism is the idea that God started the world spinning, he created the world, but then he left it alone. He doesn't care about it, he doesn't love it, he's not involved in it. It's called deism, it's this idea that there is a God, but he doesn't, he's, does, he's not in the affairs of men, he doesn't keep up with us, he's like a great watchmaker who starts it ticking, sells the watch, doesn't care anymore, it's not his. Okay, Moses is painting a picture of if that were true or something like it, here's what the world would be like. It would be a place that was not formed or cared for. It would be a place that was not filled. It would be out of order, chaos, if we had no loving father, but just a God somewhere, right? Perhaps some of you today, you feel like this is your life. Perhaps some of you, your life feels like deism, right? Your life feels like verse two so far. You don't feel like anything is really formed or filled. Darkness is over the face of your life. You feel like you are living something uninhabitable, that, that there is chaos in your world. Perhaps your life this morning feels like this in verse two, right? Without form and void. Perhaps this morning, that's where you're at. That's where the world was in the beginning. But even in verse 2 and 3, even in the very first few verses of our beloved Bible, and even this morning for you, there is good news. Good news. That in the same breath we see the chaos, we see the care. That right after we see it was without form, void, then there's darkness. We see that it wasn't made by an uncaring God, an aloof God, a a God without uh, uh, an an interest in us and the world he created. We see immediately that, no, 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 God is directly involved, that God is emotionally involved, that God is lovingly involved, like a father giving birth to a child or holding the child that his wife has given birth to, like a father who is with his small one, like a father who loves us. He is directly involved. Look at the second part of verse two. It says, the earth was without form and void, darkness on the face of the deep, and here's the good news, the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. I believe, and we believe, and it's clear. I mean, it's not just that we believe it. That anyone who reads this can see, plain as day, black and white. This is referring to God, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. And it's very interesting that it is showing that God, the Holy Spirit, who is God, who just was with the Father, creating all things, the Holy Spirit is showing great guidance, great care, and great love for what's been created. In fact, this word here, moved upon, in the King James, your translation, if you're using like an English Standard Version, it might say that he hovered above. Okay, this Hebrew phrase is only used for one instance 
in that language. And it is the instance of a mother bird caring for her eggs in a nest, comforting them, warming them, and preparing them for life. The Holy Spirit here is being compared to that mother bird who is over something not yet functioning, who is over something not yet working, who is over something not yet fully there, but is hovering over it, caring for it, warming it up and getting it ready, guiding it towards life and order and glory and breath and will and emotion and presence. So we see this in this first couple of verses that God creates all things and all things are not yet formed, but God loves what he is creating and the spirit of God is guiding it towards a perfect order. How is he going to do it? How is he going to bring all things into order? He's going to do this all through God the Son, Jesus. Look at verses 3. We'll go down to verse 5. It says, and God said, let there be light. Orders coming out of chaos. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. It was not formless and void. Things have turned a corner. God divided the light from the darkness, more order out of chaos. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. Here we see our creator. And how is he creating? Ex nihilo, which is an old phrase. It means out of nothing. He needs no materials. He needs no tools. He needs no ingredients, no supplies. Doesn't have to run down to the Dollar Tree. He's got it from nothing. He creates from his own will, his own power, his own majesty, his own glory, his own ability. He creates ex nihilo, out of nothing. And he creates via a word. Several times throughout Genesis 1, you're going to see the phrase, and God said. Here we see in verse 3, God said, let there be light. Now, as we take a step back from that verse, we ask, what is it about God's words that have this great creative power? Why is God creating via word? Right? Is that just that he is just that powerful? Well, yes, but maybe something bigger even is going on than that. Or something even greater is coming to light than that fact. Maybe it's more than just the fact that he has a loud voice or a booming voice or a a miraculous voice. Maybe there's something deeper that is to be connected. Maybe his word is in and of itself a person or deeply connected to a person. In the New Testament of the Bible, we see that that is the case and that that person is the second member of the Trinity, God the Son. He and his role is to bring order out of the chaos. I can't fully explain it or articulate it, but I can prove it. If you go with me, turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. In the New Testament of the Bible, John is the best friend of Jesus He writes about seeing Jesus, knowing Jesus, hearing Jesus, witnessing Jesus. He tells us all about the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And in his gospel, he gives Jesus a name, and that name is the Word of God. The Word of God that was from the beginning 
Look at John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning, sound familiar, was the Word. You'll notice that this is capitalized. This is referring to God the Son, John's best friend, Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. And in case you don't get that part, he clarifies it like we're five. And without him was not anything made (laughs) that was made. Right, just doubling down, just in case you're unclear on this. (laughs) In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth, and the darkness comprehended or not. Light and darkness separated. John here is purposefully mimicking the first five verses of Genesis with the first five verses of his gospel. And basically, these five verses communicate to us that that carpenter from Galilee, that homeless guy around Nazareth, who's been spending three years healing and feeding and preaching and teaching, the one who claimed to have died for our sins to make eternal peace with him and God the Father and God the Spirit, the one who claims to have the keys of death and hell, the one who claims to be the way to eternal life in heaven, yeah, that guy, that is God. He is telling us he is not someone who appeared 2,000 years ago, but rather he was one and the same with God the Father and the Spirit in the beginning, creating the heavens and the earth. He was the one who brought order to the chaos God the Father creates the heavens and the earth. The Spirit guides it, cares for it, loves it, and covers over the deep. God the Son, who later is given the proper name Jesus, was there at the forefront, creating order out of chaos alongside them both. God creates the world through the work of Jesus. A good thing for us to ask at this point is, okay, why? Okay, that's cool. I get that. Okay, we got our theology down on the Trinity there. Now, why do, we, why do you do all this? Maybe you've wondered this, right? Like, why make all this? Why put this? Why are we on a blue ball spinning in outer space? Why are we here? What is, what'd you do that for? Why, are, why, why go to all this trouble? Right? Why? Here's the answer. Whether we like it or not, whether it feels good or not, whether it makes sense to us or not, whether it clicks for us or not, this is the actual answer. He did it for his own glory, honor, and pleasure. God the Father did this for the glory of the Son. This was all for Jesus as a gift to him. That one who fed the 5,000, that one you read about in Sunday school, that one who took your place on the cross, that one who defeated death, it was all through him, it was all by him, it was all for him. We read this several places in the New Testament of the Bible. Colossians 1, Colossians 1, verse 12 through 16, we give thanks to the Father who hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Verse 15, his Son, who is the image of the invisible God. Verse 16, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Right. So he creates it by Jesus. 
And we see that he creates it for Jesus. Revelation 4, 10, and 11, the four and 20 elders fall down before him, that's Jesus, who sits on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever, casting their crowns before the throne, saying, Jesus, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure, thy glory, thy good, thy will, they are and were created. This was all for the glory of Jesus. That is why we're focusing on God the Son through this series on Genesis. Some of you who hear that might be thinking, well, why not focus on God the Father? Why not focus on God the Holy Spirit? Well, we certainly focus on all three equally. We certainly love and believe in and celebrate all three equally as one God, because they are one God. Yet it is the other members of the Trinity that desire us, for some reason, to glorify God the Son, Jesus. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him, Jesus, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Colossians 1.18 says that he, Jesus, might have the preeminence. In Matthew 28, before he ascended to heaven, Jesus said, All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Philippians 2.9, God the Father hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. So when we talk about our first glimpse of Jesus, when we emphasize Jesus in our Bible teaching, when we come together and even look at a creation account, the creation account in Genesis 1, and want to see specifically, hey, what's going on here? What we are doing is the will of the Trinity, and with the Trinity, we cry out, it's all about Jesus. Amen? This is the word of the Trinity. God says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased, and the Spirit only speaks what He hears from the Son. That They've in themselves made it about our Savior, Jesus. He was the honored one chosen to take the place of sinners and to save them forever as their king and friend. So as we go through Genesis 1, we see that God's word, who we later find out is a person, or at least working through a person named Jesus, is putting everything together in the universe in perfect order for the glory of Jesus. It's all for his praise, his glory, his honor. That's why it is so perfect. On the first three days, you see the symmetry. The first three days, he forms all the elements. As you read down Genesis 1, the sky and the sea and the land. And in the second three days with symmetry, he, he, he fills with stars and planets and birds and fish and trees and vegetation. And after each day of creation, God speaks over his creation and says that it is good gives glory. And we, as the created, are to look at creation, see how it is ordered, and we are to be amazed by it, and we are to follow suit and say with them, God is good. We saw this last night, some of us. Not everybody, I know, but where we were living, where we're living on the west side, we saw some great creation, a great part of God's creation, the snow. We, uh, I tried to put the kids to bed at the proper time. I believe it was uh, 7.30, 7.45. I gave them what I call their nighttime gummies. Melatonin, amen. 
And I'm putting them in their bed, and I read them a story, and I sang three or four songs, and they were restless and not obeying. And uh, I took a break from the fight, and I went outside, not outside, but out to the living room, and where I saw outside, oh, it's snowing. Joanna shot up like a rocket, went over to the, the window. She's like freaking out. This is amazing, right? Like she's like a, a kid in a candy store. She's wanted it to snow all winter. She goes and wakes up the kids, ruining all my hard work, right? Got these scars for no reason. They go out, they go put on their clothes. They get out of pajamas, putting on all this, uh, the coats and the hats and the gloves. They're doing all this. And they, they, they go out into the snow, and you could see on Marin and Alden's face, it was like amazement. They were just like, whoa, whoa. Of course, I didn't want to go out. I don't want to get cold and wet ever, right? But especially at 9 o'clock at night. Right? I didn't want to go out, but it was really beautiful. And even I was kind of like, whoa. So I go outside. I sit on the porch in my rocking chair. Let them go play in the yard. It's like 9.30. Our neighbor's probably about to call the police. They're all out there playing in the snow. I'm just trying to be all by myself. Then all of a sudden, they turned on me, ambushed me with snowballs. And Joanna didn't stop it. She encouraged it, was laughing about it. I went inside a little bitter, a little bitter. But I was glad it all happened, too, though, because it gave me this illustration for this morning. When my wife and my kids are out there going, whoa. When I'm out there on the porch in my own way, going, whoa, it's amazing. I, we're do, I, we were doing exactly the point of why all this exists. All of this exists for you to look up to God and say, you are good. It is good. We are to be echoing what God said all throughout Genesis 1. That is why it's all here, to bring glory up to the name of the Father. That is, that is the proper, the natural response as we see mountains and, and valleys, as we see the birds cut through the air and glide on nothing, as we see the dolphins swim and the size of things like the great whale and the deep roar of a lion and the seemingly endless trees in places like the Blue Ridge Parkway and the sand beneath our feet and the vastness of the ocean and the squishy face of a newborn baby. When we see all that, it's supposed to invoke in us a posture of worship and of praise. We're supposed to look at all that. It's made so we'll look at all that and say, it is good. It was it is designed and ordered for us to give glory to someone above us and for it to point to us that that someone above us has a son and we are to find that son, Jesus, and we're to look at him in the midst of all this and say, you are good. In fact, let's practice this morning. Would you do me the honor? Repeat after me. You, you are, are good. good. Let's say it like we mean it. You are good you are good that's the point you just did the point of your creation you just lived out the point of your existence no matter what it felt like no matter what it doesn't feel like no matter how much it fulfills you doesn't fulfill you no matter how that experience is for you or not it's not about you amen that's not why you're here you're here for that. Hey, you are good. And we're to be echoing this phrase all throughout our lives. 
no matter what's going on. In fact, that is partly why Genesis 1 through 5 is written this way. It's actually built into the text. It's for us to look up and say, you are good no matter what. I'll prove this to you. We'll close with this idea. Look at Deuteronomy 32, if you would. If you can find it. If you can't find it, no big deal. I'll read it to you. Deuteronomy 32 shows us that part of the reason Genesis 1 through 5 is written the way it's written, part of the reason Genesis 1 is written the way it's written was to give strength to people to believe and to declare that God is good even when times are not. As we said at the beginning, Moses wrote it. And he wrote it while him and his people have come out of slavery in Egypt. The people of Israel came out of Egypt and they're heading towards a promised land, but they are not yet there. They have to wander in the wilderness. And it's coming to the end of Moses' life. And and they weren't there yet, obviously. And Moses is going to pass away. A guy named Joshua is going to take over. And there's a cause for great discouragement. As you know, the Israelites constantly found something to complain about on this journey. Not quite, not unlike us, right? We would be the same way. And Moses actually gives them a song to sing to encourage their hearts in Deuteronomy 32. He writes a song for them. And in verses 10 through 12, it's the only other place in the whole Bible where these words are used. He uses the same words he used when he wrote Genesis chapter 1, 1 through 5. Very interesting. It's not used anywhere else in the whole Bible. It's by the same author. So we see that this author is deliberately giving them something to sing about the creation story to encourage their hearts to call God good. Deuteronomy 32, 10 through 12, it's going to be a little cryptic, but you'll pick it up. It says this in verse 10, he found him, that's the nation of Israel. Sometimes it was referred to as Jacob, which was one of their forefathers. And so earlier in the text, you'll see he's talking about Jacob, and it's a euphemism for the whole of Israel. So he's talking about the nation of Israel. He found the nation of Israel in a desert land and a wasteland. A howling wilderness without form and void, chaos. And he encircled him and instructed him, bringing order. And he kept him as the apple of his eye. Praise God, right? That's a beautiful phrase. I mean, it's unbelievable. And as an eagle stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings, So the Lord alone led them. Remember I told you that in verse 2, when it said that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters or moved upon the waters, it was a phrase only used for one instance, and that was a mother bird caring, caring for young, yet to experience life. Right Here you see that in color versus black and white. Moses writes a song. He, he takes it, he's, he's going to use art, it's beautiful, poetry, and he's going to use truth and factuality as well, and he writes this song to his people who do not want to say in this moment God is good, because they feel like their life is out of order and in chaos and, un, and, and, and disorienting because they're in the wilderness, and he says basically through the song, just like God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit brought 
order out of chaos in the beginning with their loving and incredible power, their goodness and their might, their, their care and their ability. So God is leading you in the midst of your chaos and in the midst of your wilderness, in the midst of a life you're living without form and void. That same God who brought all of this into order can bring all of us into his same order. And on this side of the new covenant, we see him do that ultimately by taking the chaos of our sin on the cross and bringing order to our relationship with God, taking the chaos of death, defeating it, rising again, bringing order to our death, for when we die, we will rise again. He brings order out of chaos. Moses wants to encourage his people with that, and I want to encourage you with that this morning. So here's the question. If you're in a season that feels disorienting, confusing, out of order, why would you look to anything or anyone else but Jesus for order? It is found in no other place. Whether it's money or intoxication, whether it's even certain relationships and Vision, dreams, business, work, whatever. Order only comes, ultimately comes from a loving father who used his son to give us the care and guidance of the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. So the application is simple. (laughs) Wherever you find yourself at this morning, there is order to be found, but it can only be found in the one who made you and the one who made all this. And it can only be found in glorifying that guy, God the Son. His name is Jesus. And this is our first glimpse of him in Genesis 1, 1 through 5. Musicians are going to come up.